Don't turn a blind eye You can hear the people cry Wake up and be strong And fight for what is wrong Welcome back, everybody, to episode two of Bold Conversations About Race, season two. And I am one of your hosts, Dahlia, and I use they, them pronouns. And I'm Yvette, and I also use they, them pronouns. For our first three episodes, we recorded live at UCLA, and we tackled three major topics that are on the forefront of our organizing. The first is the war on drugs. Then we discussed surveillance. And lastly, we spoke about immigration. So Yvette, can you tell us a little bit more about the war on drugs? Sure. Well, to really understand the modern war on drugs, we have to look back at the history of drug use. So just a little brief history. Uh, I want to make sure it's clear to the audience that drugs have been used for thousands and thousands of years in spiritual practice and medicine drugs, what we would consider drugs uh, like marijuana, uh, have been used for medicinal purposes, also psychedelics uh, throughout Latin America, uh, like peyote, uh, like ayahuasca, have been used in indigenous ceremony. So modern uh, criminalization of these drugs goes hand in hand with colonialization uh, and imperialism and here in the Americas and throughout the world, starting from uh, laws against uh, Chinese immigrants uh, that were the first anti-opium laws in the 1870s to the criminalization of marijuana that targeted Mexicans in the Southwest and Midwest and moving into the criminalization of cocaine, which has largely impacted black and Latinx communities throughout the United States. Uh, So the modern war on drugs as we know it really... uh, spawned from the Nixon era. So in the 1960s, a lot of youth were turning to psychedelics, marijuana and other drugs as um, a way to both cope with the trauma of the Vietnam War um, and the culture clash that was that was happening at the time and also to connect with uh, spirituality and the Nixon administration seeing this as a disruption to the status quo pushed back against uh, drug use and declared a war on drugs. And that dramatically increased the size and presence of federal drug control agencies and pushed through measures such and pushed through measures such as mandatory sentencing and knock knock warrants. Moving into the 80s, we have a drug hysteria that happened, and that comes hand in hand with the rise of mass incarceration. So we have the rise of uh, mandatory minimums. We have... uh, three strike laws that come up in the 90s and uh, local, state and federal government just continuing to look for ways to criminalize folks for their substance use and also which often comes hand in hand their self-medication because of trauma or untreated mental health needs. And so as the federal government and local government starts divesting from people's health and uh, services, we see a rise in substance use and people being criminalized for that use. 
although here in California, uh, marijuana has been legalized, it hasn't been legalized for all people. And most drugs have not been legalized, right? And so for folks that are undocumented or green card holders, for instance, they still can't legally uh, consume or use marijuana products, even in California, because of federal restrictions. People that uh, that use substances continue to be uh, one of the groups that are most targeted by the system and funneled into incarceration. And substance use continues to be a widespread epidemic. Uh, in our last episode, Dahlia talked about the impact of opioids in their history and their community and watching how the youth around them were dying from the opioid epidemic. So I think the growing visibility around substance use and the war on drugs is an important moment for us to be able to move those in power to see substance use as something that is can actually be healing for people and that at the very minimum should not be treated with incarceration. It doesn't actually heal our communities or save anyone uh, from the harms of substance use and those that uh, have gone through the system are continuously punished for uh, that substance use that may have been a problem for them 20 years ago. There's still people inside of our jails and our prisons serving time for marijuana, even though it's legalized here in California. So we really want to be able to address the nuances of the war on drugs and learn how to collectively push uh, policymakers in the right direction. Right, right. And the reality is we can't have these hard conversations about race without talking about incarceration. And you can't talk about incarceration without talking about how the government has criminalized drug use and drug users. Right. So it's all interrelated. So without further ado, we're going to be heading right into episode two. And we're going to be opening with a land acknowledgement from one of our producers, Kareem Alzine. And before we begin today, I wanted to start with a land acknowledgement uh, to pay respect to the traditional caretakers of the land on which we meet the Tongva peoples. The American Indian Studies Center here at UCLA has asked for every event, class, and gathering on campus to begin with a land acknowledgement. We recognize the continued legacy of settler colonialism with UCLA as a land-grant institution. We are on occupied territory and we recognize the strength, resilience, and capacity of the Tongva peoples in this land. We also pay our respects to elders past and present of all indigenous peoples, the Los Angeles region, Turtle Island, or what has been called the United States and throughout the world, and extend our recognition to all their relations, past, present, and emerging. So I would like everyone to just pause for a moment, take that in, uh, join me in taking Three deep breaths at your own pace. This event, um, it's been a long time in the coming for several years uh, with the Bruin Excellence and Student Transformation Grant Program. We thought of this idea of bringing uh, social movement leaders in the Los Angeles area to campus so that student activists and community members could 
um, hear more about social movements uh, in the area and in the country. A lot of times, I think, in academic spaces, we even when we bring social movement leaders to campus, it's for academic conversations. Um, and so we want to allow for that type of knowledge, knowledge that is centered on the act of social change, um, to be allowed to, to flourish and be shared in this type of space. Um, so we had this vision for that type of event. Um, and then when the organizers of the Bold podcast came to us with the idea of having a live recorded uh, interview for their, their national podcast, we thought it was a great opportunity for us to, to sort of join, join resources um, and come together for this. Yeah, there's milk and cookies in the background, almond milk too, and water to the, um, to the other end of the, uh, of the room. So make yourself at home. Thank you. I need one quarter inch to dual quarter inch and three barrels. All right, so, so uh, are we ready to inches. rock and roll? Uh, Let's do this. There's only one out for that, so. Uh, welcome everybody to our next uh, edition of Bold Conversations About Race. And this is a podcast that's brought to you by Showing Up for Racial Justice National in collaboration with Small Beans Comedy and produced by White People for Black Lives. And I'm your host, Dahlia Ferlito, co-founder of White People for Black Lives. And I am thrilled to announce uh, a fellow co-host to our bold podcast family, Yvette L.A. Please take it away, Yvette. Thank you, Dahlia. I'm really excited to be joining the bold family. I got the pleasure to be interviewed by you uh, at, during the last episode. So now I'm stepping in in a different capacity. Um, like uh, Dahlia mentioned, I'm Yvette Ale. I'm with Dignity and Power Now and the Justice LA Coalition. Uh, and I'm really excited to introduce our first guest, Eunice Hernandez. She is the lead organizer for just Leadership USA in Los Angeles. She's part of the Justice LA Coalition. She's a voting member of the Alternatives to Incarceration Work Group in LA County. She is a commissioner on the Gender uh, Justice Advisory Committee and an overall badass. Yes, uh, second just last night, she was co-hosting the Women's Policy Institute fundraiser and doing a phenomenal job. So uh, welcome, Eunices. Thank you. Thank you both for having me. I'm so excited. Yeah, we're so thrilled that you can be here. And for folks who might be listening right now, just so you know, we are on the campus of UCLA doing a live recorded session here with a bunch of students and activists who are joining us to witness this conversation. So we're thrilled to be here and we thank the collaboration with UCLA. Right, so let's kick it off. We're gonna talk drugs, uh, we're gonna talk criminalization, and uh, what we haven't mentioned yet, Onesis, is that you used to work at the Drug Policy Alliance, right? Yeah, I, that's how I got started in the policy work at Drug Policy Alliance as an intern. Great, and what brought you to drug policy? Like, what was your interest there? So, when I was in college, I actually wanted to be a cop, I, because I thought I, I could be the cop that doesn't arrest people. Wow. Because growing up, I saw so many of my family, friends, and loved ones arrested um, and criminalized for drug use or whether it was problematic substance use with alcohol. I, but I saw it and I saw how like it was police uh, that instead of helping my family really like, and my loved ones really put people into like these jails and these systems where 
then my mom would have to pay bail or other people would have to pay bail to get their freedom. But, um, and then also I just saw a lot of like drug use around me that wasn't problematic, just people using drugs and it, you know, wasn't hindering their lives or impacting or harming anyone around them or their community. And so I really felt like that was, that was the niche that I could fit in um, because I've seen it, I lived through it and I had a perspective that other folks didn't around drug use. Can you talk a little bit about the connection between sort of like the war on drugs and mass incarceration? Sure. So the war on drugs, uh, when we think about it, it's a war literally on people and on an, uh, like a, a, an action, which is the use of drugs or the selling of drugs. And so the war on drugs was an excuse uh, that was used to write a bunch of laws that created mechanisms to incarcerate people or to kick people out of the country forever or to incarcerate them in immigrant prisons. Um, for example, my friend at the age of 21 was selling weed because that's what he was able to do. You know, he didn't graduate high school and that's where he found he could make an income. And he got, you know, arrested. He got put into Twin Towers Jail here in LA County. And from there, his life, like he still is like recovering from that. And that happened when we were like 21 and we're 29 now. And so it was because he had, he had weed on him in, you know, in, uh, stored in a certain way that you know, they used a law that criminalized possession of marijuana to incarcerate him and, and essentially like ruin his life for now. I mean, now and we're gonna, I think, talk about it later on, but there are things that our generation has done to repair some of those harms that have kind of repaired some of that, that, that he's experienced. So something that you just referenced really stuck with me, how the criminalization of drugs is really the criminalization of people, yes. right? People yes. that take drugs. Um, and drugs that are criminalized now, like coca, like psychedelics, um, things like mushrooms, LSD, um, not so much LSD, but mushrooms and, and other forms of plant medicine have been used for thousands of years as medicine, as uh, spiritual practices, right? And we're seeing uh, a continued history of targeting of those communities of color. When you take a look at opium in the is it 1870s, right? Mm -hmm. 1870s with the opium um, uh, drug laws targeting Chinese immigrants. Mm -hmm. We see in the 1910s and 20s the criminalization of Mexicans in the Southwest, right? And then the 90s, the criminalization of black men in the South around cocaine. How do you see this as a continued legacy of targeting those specific communities? Like, why do those communities keep being targeted versus white communities? The answer to that question really lies in that the origins of the war on drugs are very racist. And you can see it in all the laws that you talked about now. I mean, in the past, like marijuana and, and cocaine. But even today, like, if I, I have Adderall pills, I, I can go get, I can get a prescription and get Adderall pills, right? Chemically, it's a, almost the exact same drug as methamphetamines. But if I have meth on me, I'm gonna go to jail. But if you have, you know, Adderall pills on you, you're not. And usually, who has access to what, really? And also, with co like with cocaine and crack, at the federal level, if you, my punishment for like, let's say we had the same amount, you had one gram of coke, I had one gram of crack. My punishment would be 18 times harsher than yours, even though we had the same amount. And that's really because the, the, the laws that came out around 1980s around crack were really to hinder, you know, black communities, or at least communities that, that, uh, 
the bureaucracies and, and people in power connected those communities too. It wasn't essential, like that, that was born there. It's like what they connected in the media. And, and, and to that point, it's like, I remember there, back, back in those times, we, had, we put faces to certain types of mm -hmm. drugs and then really made media spectacles, right? Like of like who used crack, right? And then mm -hmm. um, vilified people for an addiction to a substance versus saying like, hey, these are people who need help, yeah. right? Yeah, and today you see almost the exact same thing playing out with the opioid epidemic. Like, who are the faces of the opioid ep epidemic? There's so many videos of white parents and families with their children, but it's, it's, it, the response to it is like, how do we get people services? How do we right. get them naloxone? But that, you know, that's not the same reaction that we've seen in the past for other communities experiencing you know, issues like this. And I think the crack epidemic is a perfect example of that. Right. Right. So some of the solutions that we're hearing to this uh, problem of criminalization is decriminalizing drugs um, and also legalizing. Can you talk about the difference between legalizing versus decriminalizing? Yes, so in Spain, drugs have never been criminalized, meaning that you could possess drugs in Spain, use drugs in Spain, and the cops can't arrest you. You're not gonna go to jail for, for doing those things. Um, and in Portugal, they have decriminalized drugs, meaning that you can possess and use for yourself, and the cops, the, the, the repercussions for that will not be like in the criminal justice system that they have over there. Instead, the impacts of, of uh, having, having drugs on you or using drugs in public is that you get sent to like this board that is made up of like different behavioral health doctors and physicians uh, or community-based organizations. And so that's really what it is. Decriminalizing is taking away the penal impact, the incarceration piece, the arresting piece. And then um, you said legalizing, right? Legalizing is, is just making the substance, in, putting it in a regulated system. So like marijuana, for example, we legalized it in 2016 with Prop 64. And what it did is that marijuana was already in California, right? It's already in our streets. There's already businesses around it before Prop 64. But what it did is that after Prop 64 passed, it created a regulated system to regulate the, the, the substance. So regulate where weed is grown, regulate where weed is sold. Um, and in other, uh, in other aspects, decriminalizing is much better than actually legalizing, like with sex work. Decriminalizing would be way better, uh, from what we've heard in, in meetings that we've had with folks that are involved in sex work, that it would be better to decriminalize than actually regulate the process. With substances, it's a little bit different because you wanna know what you're consuming. And in order to know what you're consuming, you probably want it to get tested before you buy it, right? So you know what's in it, and so that that's when you, regulate and legalize drugs, that's what happens. But there still can be a punishment for it, like we see with marijuana, like there's still offenses that you can be criminalized for having it. And for, for legalization, I think like one thing that people I've heard talk about is like, then it creates a big business. Mm -hmm. And then one of the impacts of that business is who profits from that business. Mm -hmm. And like what we've seen in, with marijuana legalization, you have a lot of white folks who are profiting off of the business model of weed legalization and a lot of folks, people of color, black folks, indigenous folks, other people of color who have been historically harmed by this war on drugs are unable to actually start a, a weed business because if they've had a past felony, like they can't even start, even if, especially if it's related to marijuana, they can't even start this business and they can't even get their records expunged, right? Like, 
can you, is there anything I'm missing from that? Or like, how do we grapple with this like legalization that can help in some ways, but also um, not completely address like, or redress the harm from, from the war on drugs in other ways? So I completely agree with you that that we've seen big business take over and we've seen still like these businesses that have traditionally been opened in like lower income communities, they don't ever get a chance to reg like get become part of the system because there's so many capitalistic barriers and also the barriers if you have an offense because within that law, and I know we're gonna get into it later, but within Prop 64, there's carve outs of who actually can be, be licensed, who can actually have an opportunity to get a license. And a lot of that comes from really bad policy. And so what happens, um, with legalization doesn't have to look as bad as it's looked in the past. Like what we've seen in the past, especially like Prop 64 is the most recent example, a lot of, the, of why it was written the way it was written is because the people who were at the table writing it felt like they needed to give those things up in order to pass this policy. And that's really you know, what it means that in, in moving forward, like Prop 64 is the bare minimum of where people should be aiming at. Like they sh this sh it shouldn't set the bar, like we gotta go above and beyond that. Because we're seeing that, like, folks from the beginning were saying, if you do it this way, there's going to be people that are never going to get access. Weed is going to be so expensive that there's still going to be a need for an underground market because people can't afford three layers of taxation. It's just going to be that way. And also we have this, you know, this, all this stuff happening around vaping. Like, there's vaping commercials and, like, anti-vaping stuff on KPCC. And it's like, the reason why those things happen is because you still have an underground market that's thriving because you haven't let people access, you know, the regulated system where they right. can get things that are tested so they know what they're getting. And really legalization has, has, has put a cap on that. So you touched a little bit about uh, Prop 64 and the focus of decriminalizing drugs, in this case marijuana, has been around legislation. But there are covert actors to this process that often don't get talked about. Can you name some of those covert actors that impact how people are criminalized by drugs? Yeah, so oftentimes when we think about this system, we think, okay, first is cops, right? Because those are the first people who have interactions with our families. Um, they have the most discretion to, to decide what happens with our loved ones in those moments that, you know, filter people into the system. And there's also prosecutors. And right now there's a big um, magnifying glass over the prosecutor's office here in L.A. County because there's a huge DA race coming. But there are people that fall through the cracks that have no oversight, no supervision, literally have unlimited power on what happens with our loved ones and families because they are the deciders at the end of the road. And these are the judges. Uh, in LA County, there are hundreds of courtrooms, which means there are hundreds of judges, I think over 400 in just this county, that really decide the fate of people. And we vote them into those seats or they're appointed by the governor. And we, you know, who, who, who knows who they voted for for the governor at the last election? Do you know anything about them, their backgrounds? Do you know who they are? I don't. I, I don't. I don't know who was up. I just know that I put a name that I like the best. And that's really sad because now knowing what's truly happening there and hearing what's coming out of this court watch program, knowing that, and then my cousin just caught a, like, caught a case last year and the judge, you know, it was just an incredible, disturbing thing that happened with him, with that judge, but there's no oversight over them. 
and we they just get to slide into those seats willy-nilly and so uh, we're actually trying to move on that now um, locally there's been and I think at the state level too there's been an interest in investing in, in campaign work and so we're um, we're starting an organization called La Defensa that will focus on judges' campaigns. So we're gonna not just, I don't, we don't wanna know about their pedigree. I don't care what law school you went to. I don't care who your friends are. I want to know how you're gonna make decisions in the courtroom. I wanna know who's funding your campaigns. I wanna know the things that are gonna impact how you're gonna decide the, the fate of my family and my loved ones. And so that's really what we're, we're, we're trying to dig into. And I'm just, really excited and grateful that there's an interest from philanthropy and community to invest in that type of work so that they just don't do whatever they want anymore. So drugs exist, people use them. What should we be doing to mitigate harm and to stop the state violence against folks that use drugs? Well, the first thing is we have to decriminalize all drugs. And that means that when folks have, when they're in possession of it, when they're using it, that they're not criminalized for it. You don't get a citation, you don't go to court, you're not arrested, incarcerated. That should be the first thing. Uh, the, the next thing we should do is perhaps create opportunities for people to purchase those drugs in a regulated system, but in a way where it's inclusive of everyone, you know, like we're, we, we're at the table writing it and, and not willing to give up our communities or give up opportunities for our communities in the development of that, that policy, but drugs are in our communities. If we regulate them, we're not introducing something new. Drugs are there. Adderall is there. Meth is there. Weed is there too, like everything, and so we have to create a safe access point so that we know what we're consuming. You talk a little bit about ATI and how no, that. Yeah, sorry, yeah, sorry. I was, like, I was like, I know something I was going to touch on. Something. ATI stands for Alternatives to Incarceration. So, those of us that advocate for no more jails and to end mass incarceration are also advocating for what we want. So, it's not just about burning down the system, it's about building what we want out of those ashes, right? And shifting resources away from punitive systems, away from policing, from probation, from jails and prisons, and investing it back into our communities. So, alternatives can look like substance use treatment, mental health clinics, education. All of these pieces are alternatives to incarceration because they address the root causes of harm in our communities. So the approach of ATI is not punitive, but rather a healing public health approach to addressing harm. Yeah. So also it's like if if someone is having some some problematic use with some substance, then there's also should be alternatives for them in our communities. And when I mean alternatives, I mean alternatives to the ER, alternative to the jails, alternative to police. Like, if I, if you, if, if I'm, if you see me and I'm, you can tell that I'm having some sort of, of, of issues with using certain substances and you're my friend, we want to create the community where you as my friend or as my loved one can say, you know what, how about we go to this place right here, it's, it's free or low cost and you can access it, it can be outpatient, it can be inpatient, whatever it is. And we have, okay, let's take a step back. For most people that use drugs, they have no issue with them. They have no problems that impact themselves or their community. So we, that should be the get-go. Most people can use drugs and it's okay. But it's, a, it's, a, it's this 10% of folks who use drugs that have problematic, uh, you know, 
practices with them that impact them and their communities is where we need to have these alternatives, where we need to not criminalize them. In LA County, for example, we have the largest jail system in the entire country. Average daily population is 17,000 people. For every single person, for the entire population, the top, one of the top charges is simple drug possession. Just having drugs on you is one of the top charges that gets you in the LA County jail system. And so also like people are, we don't like to talk, folks don't like to talk about DUIs. But the thing is like there are folks getting multiple DUIs and we're not doing anything to support them. Like, okay, if you're gonna keep just incarcerating them but nothing happens then people are gonna still practice the way they practice. And there's, there's a, a doctor who runs a safe consumption site in um, Canada and his name is Gabar Mate. And he talks a lot about addiction and he talks about the brain and the brain chemistry and certain, um, the way that brains can get developed if they've experienced trauma. And so that traumatic experience can kind of lay a foundation for needing to sort of fill a void. And oftentimes people rely on, on substances to fill that void because they don't have any other adaptive ways of coping. So they, they resort to maladaptive ways. And then what do we do? We re-traumatize them by putting them through these systems instead of getting them the care that they need to thrive, right? Um, and I don't know if there's anything that you wanted to say on, on that event or um, Onesis. But. Yeah, I mean, the, the irony here is that some of the drugs that are uh, criminalized can be used to treat folks that have dependencies on drugs that put themselves in danger, or their community in danger, like methamphetamines um, or opioids. Like marijuana, for instance, has been proven to be helpful in pain management, right? But because it's illegal in most parts of the country, folks have depended on opioids for a very long time. Ayahuasca and peyote have been shown to help folks get off of methamphetamines but those, uh, those psychedelics are also not uh, legalized here in the US. Uh, I know MAPS is an organization that does research on MDMA and its ability to help folks with PTSD. And so there, there are untapped resources and medicines that have been indigenous to the Americas that communities of color have been using for, um, not just for spiritual purposes, but also medicinally for a very long time that remain untapped. Can you, so just to like kind of switch gears a little bit, um, we know that you worked for a period of time at the Drug Policy Alliance and the goal of Drug Policy Alliance is to pass drug policies, right? Um, can you talk a little bit about um, things that you're excited by, the shifts that have been made in drug policy that, that you're happy about, that you're proud of? So there's a few things that I'm proud of, and I'm gonna talk about the ones that I'm not proud of too, because they have been incredible humbling and learning experiences. Um, but some of the, my favorite work is like when we pass laws around getting people out of prison and jail faster, and so that we, they can reunite with their families, like that's my shit. Like for the last few years, I've worked with a, a group of people who have helped pass policy in California that has led to the reunification of thousands of families because we've reduced sentences. And so there's a, when the war on drugs, the war on drugs is still thriving, so let's just put it out there. But when a lot of the policies were being developed to uh, create the war on drugs and reinforce it, some of them are around sentencing. And so there's something called 
sentence enhancements, which add time to your base sentence for various factors, whether it's like previous, previous convictions or whether you had a gun or just circumstances of the case. Like California has over 100 sentence enhancements on the penal code books. Now, there's a sentence enhancement uh, that would add three years to your base sentence for each and every single time you had a drug conviction on your record. And when we talk about the folks who have, you know, who are most vulnerable in our communities, they're not just going to jail one time for a drug conviction. They're going in 15, 20, 30, 40 times. And when we mean that, it's like from beginning to, from arrest, all the way to a conviction. I've seen people with over 40 cases on their, on their dockets and on their life scans, and mostly related to drugs use, mostly related to crimes of survival, or like just a lot of like, poverty-related issues. And so these are the folks cycling in and out that we really want to like keep out of this, this system. But, but it's important to recognize that every single time they've had a drug conviction, that's every single time they would have gotten this sentence enhancement. And so when we looked at the data for CDCR, which is the California Department of Corrections, um, their data, we saw that there were people who had an additional 15 years on their base sentence because they had five additional drug convictions in their past. We see people in our county jails today serving over 12 years on just these sentence enhancements. And so we passed a law, uh, SB 180, by Senator Holly Mitchell, that literally all the law did was erase the penal code sentence that created this enhancement. Literally, it was one freaking sentence Damn. that had thousands of years of people's lives at stake um, and that we've seen applied on people's like sentences. And so when we, did, when we passed that law, it was deleted, meaning that prosecutors can no longer use it. At the CDCR level, we saw that CDCR began to review people's records to get them out sooner because the, you know, those, the sentence enhancement didn't exist. We're still trying to get it applied at the local level, but that's a law that I'm really proud of because we didn't, we didn't leave anybody behind. All the law did was erase a penal code. It didn't say, we're gonna erase it, but these people don't get it. Like, these people will still get it, you know? Like, it was just, boom, nobody's gonna get this sentence enhancement. And some of the laws that I'm not most proud of are laws um, that when I very much started this work seemed like the, the most incredible things, and they, they still are some of the most incredible laws but the negative impacts that they've had have been tremendous in our work the last several years. For example, Prop 47, the Safe Neighborhoods and Schools Act, incredible law because we reunited thousands of families. People who were there for in prison for selling $5 with a crack got to go home because of Prop 47. Also though, Prop 47 had huge carve-outs in it, which said that if you have a certain type of conviction, you will, not get, you will not be able to apply for relief under the law, which means you will not be getting out early if you qualify. And so that is one of the things where laws that have passed after Prop 47 have mirrored some of the carve-outs that were created in Prop 47. And so although it was amazing, we reunited families, we're still dealing with the brunt impacts of like these, these carve-outs that dichotomize people of like, these people are deserving of reform. Those people are not deserving of reform. And that dichotomy gets us nowhere. Everybody needs to benefit. And so we're pushing back on that, but those are some of the lessons that I've learned. Um, you know, some of the folks that are most vulnerable to carve-outs are undocumented folks, right? Non-citizens. Can you talk a little bit about um, how those folks are left out of policy, even Prop 64? 
I think like Prop 64 is like one of the most blatant examples of like, yeah, California is supposed to be the lead and like the guiding light of criminal justice reform, but also so you know, we were the, the leaders in incarceration. And also we're supposed to be a safe, safe sanctuary for people who are immigrants or non-citizens. But with Prop 64, like if I get, I'm a citizen, if I get caught with marijuana or if I get a marijuana conviction, my punishment will be depending on what the, what the offense is, I might go to jail. That's it. You know, I'm out of jail. I get an expungement. I'm cool. If I'm a non-citizen, so that means if I'm undocumented or if I'm a green card holder, even if I just talk about possessing marijuana, even if I just talk about, like, using it one time, that could make me inadmissible to come back into the country if I ever leave. And it can also make me uh, ineligible to apply for citizenship or other offenses because marijuana at the federal level is still illegal. And so even, at, even though at the state level we really legalize it for everybody else, immigrants can still have their whole lives destroyed because of marijuana. And also at the federal level, you see there's a law, I don't know if you all have heard about it, but it's called the First Step Act. You know, uh, Trump... Uh, touts this as his bipartisan criminal justice reform bill. We have seen, you know, about 3,000 people released on that, which is great, but also immigrants don't get any of that relief. They don't qualify for none of that sentence reduction, none of the, you know, relief and benefits from that law, and it's intentional. Um, so, yeah, it's um, very clean for, for people to be able to see it. Well, what would you say to people that are saying, well, you know, we need incremental change, right? We'll start off with this population and we'll get to undocumented folks or we'll get to uh, folks with, you know, certain types of offenses. Like, what would you say to that? I would say, when has anyone gone back? When has anyone yes. gone back? We haven't. Prop 47 happened. No one's gone back for all those people that are still there that could benefit from the law. We haven't. And just the, the resources are so limited just to get one or two steps forward. Um, I don't know if capitalism change or if, you know, the philanthropy will change, but, you know, implementation is hard to get funded, even in that piece. Um, so I would, yeah, I would say we don't, people, not that people don't want to go back for people, but there's just no resources and there's just no capacity. So when people get left behind, people have stayed behind. So it's always about the all of us are non approach from the get. When you ask for a piece of the pie, you're probably gonna get a piece of the piece of the pie. Mm. But when you ask for the whole fucking pie, you're more likely to get more than whatever you thought you were gonna get in the beginning. And so that's really important in policy development. When I talked about Prop 64, I talked about how folks came to the table already coming with things that they were willing to carve out and compromise to get the law passed. But you have to ask for everything that you want because then that's gonna be more likely that you're gonna get what you want, especially around the jail fight that we've been participating in and that Yvette has been leading for over two years now, is like really the call was to like, we don't want any more jails, no more jails. We're not saying don't build anything, we're saying just don't build jails, build houses, build resources. And because we were uncompromising with that, we stopped a $3.5 billion jail plan that was gonna yes, build two new yes. jails, a women's jail and a jail just for people who have behavioral health needs. And so there was a moment in the campaign where they just literally switched the name of the mental health jail to mental health treatment center. It would still be run by the sheriffs. And we were like, no, that's not good enough. We're not compromising on this. And now we're here today. So you really, you don't walk in, especially around policy, like don't walk in with, with already willing to compromise. You have to be ready to throw down for all of it and fight for as much as you can. I mean, I've been in rooms now with you, Onesis, where you tell people straight up, you cannot limit your imagination, right? Um, 
Before we get to some Q&A, uh, we wanted to just ask, like, what are some ways that folks can get involved in this work? Whether it's if you're in Los Angeles, we know that a lot of our listeners are not in Los Angeles. So, if, you know, if they're in, in, around the country or around the world. Yeah, so there's a couple things folks can do. I would there's like not many organizations that are at the helm of trying to end the war on drugs. There's a there's a few of them. Um, Maps is one of them. The other the other one that I worked for, which is the Drug Policy Alliance, um, is doing incredible work, especially at the federal level uh, and in, here in California around safe consumption spaces, around legalizing marijuana at the federal level. That will include you know benefits for people who are immigrants. And so I would say if you can't come to a rally, if you can't attend, figure out if you want to intern for you know Drug Policy Alliance, if you want to support with resources which are tremendously needed, like even if it's five dollars, like that goes to like people being able to be present in Sacramento to fight for the laws that we want. And also I heard through the grapevine that there's gonna be a ballot on the initiative in California very soon to legalize all drugs in California. So that's coming um, in 2024, just keep your ears out. But I highly suggest like if you wanna be part of campaigns, like policy development work, like especially around the war on drugs and drug policy, uh, donate to the Drug Policy Alliance. Um, also, you talked about um, uh, safe consumption spaces here in LA. I don't know, do y'all know what safe consumption spaces are? So there exists, they exist across the world, not here in California. Well, legally in California, they don't exist, but there's two underground safe consumption spaces here in California, one in LA and one in the Bay. And um, I think it's important that we invest in those and also like clean needle exchange, right? Wait, we're not supposed to say that? It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. We'll keep it in. Okay. I know you don't have we'll, to keep it we'll in. Figure it's that secret. Out. It's secret. Uh, so yeah. I erase that, delete that. We can edit that. <laughs> but just so you know, it's happening. Like these things are already being practiced in the community that just haven't been legalized. But we're working through the alternatives to incarceration to create legal legal ways to have these spaces exist. But just so you know, yeah, that's happening. But there's an organization called Homeless Healthcare that has a clean needle exchange program that does incredible work uh, in Skid Row, but in also in other parts of LA that could really use the resources, especially because some of these clean needle exchange stuff, like the state doesn't provide or it provides at a really expensive cost. And even naloxone, so like when folks are overdosing uh, with opioids, there's, an, there's a reverse like drug that'll wake people up and that's called naloxone. And so naloxone can also be uh, pretty pricey. So like even if you want to volunteer, I've gone to their space, you can volunteer there like and actually work with people in, in this clean needle exchange program. And so I don't know, like there's like different worlds you can plug in like you can do the service world like we're actually dealing with people in day in and day out but there's also like the, the policy world where you actually change the laws that impact what happens on the ground right right so you know you can you can do direct services there are needle exchange um, programs that operate across the country in a lot of different states and in different different parts of the world um, which are an access point for people who are using drugs to be able to get them involved in other services and uh, treatment programs as well. And they also have been effective at reducing the spread of bloodborne infections such as HIV and hepatitis. So there are ways that um, we can think about looking at substance use as a public health issue rather than a criminal justice issue and that's certainly one way of doing that. Um, we do have some audience questions that I think we have a few minutes to take, so I'm going to go ahead and try to read these as well as possible. 
some really good handwriting here, so I appreciate that. Um, what are ways that we can actually decriminalize drugs? And we say, when I say we, we mean everyone, anyone, policy, and law. Like, what does decriminalization of drugs actually look like? I think that looks differently in different spaces. I think in LA County, the most obvious, the most concrete point to make this happen is through participating in the Alternatives to Incarceration work group. Last week, we, and we've been, no, I don't want to say this. But I'm gonna say it for y'all in the room. We've been finessing this whole process, like being at the table, literally writing the recommendations ourselves, pushing against you know what the institutions like the sheriffs and probations really want, and, and fighting for what we want to see in our community. And one of the recommendations that we got approved uh, last week was to decriminalize uh, offenses related to drug use, related to public intoxication, related to driving with a suspended license or no license, and until they do those things, they shouldn't arrest or incarcerate people for those things. And so that's a real concrete, and, and, and across the country in every state and city, it looks very different based on the political landscape. But here and now today in LA County where we live, the most clearest way that I see that plugging in is through that this ATI space. And it's, we've managed to finesse it in a way where community is at the table leading every single piece of it. And when we mean community, it's us, it's people that have been directly impacted. There's young people involved and we need like an entire spectrum of community there because it's one of like the small openings in this bureaucracy that we've had been able to build some power in. So we've mentioned ATI and Alternatives to Incarceration Worker, but I don't think we've explained what that is. Just, so just for folks that aren't familiar with our jargon. Um, so the Alternatives to Incarceration Workgroup was formed earlier this year uh, when the Board of Supervisors in Los Angeles stopped the LA County jail plan. They also created this work group, which includes the heads of all of the county departments, so Department of Public Health, the Sheriff's Department, County Council, but they also appointed stakeholders from each district, and Onises happened to be one of those stakeholders that they appointed to be a voting member. So this group of voting members, I think it's, what, 15? Yeah. 15 voting members around there? Um, they are tasked with approving a report that comes out early next year. And this report is going to be a roadmap for LA County for alternatives to incarceration. So everything from preventing cops from being the first responders to a mental health crisis, to pretrial reform, to uh, re-entry services, it will give the roadmap to what to build out, like clinics in our community, a decentralized system of care. And so, like Onisa's mentioned, this is a, a very unique opening that we as community have right now to influence how we're gonna transform LA County. Yeah, and if your jive isn't policy, if your jive isn't service like delivery, but it's like research and it's data collection, we need that shit too. Like the reason, one of the like main things that really helped us stop this jail fight was the reports that came out of a program here at UCLA called the Million Dollar Hoods Project that really showed LA County in its face like a mirror. Like this is the data from your county and this is what's happening. And then the super LA County supervisor started quoting that. But also, so there's like not just like, you know, it's not black and white in this space. It's like a spectrum. Shoot, we need graphic designers. We need people who are interested in social media, like developing social media crowds. Like the spectrum of where you can plug is kind of endless in this space. Thank you. Um, 
we had a question around uh, legalization versus decriminalization, well, either or. Um, if we ever get to a place where uh, drugs are not in their current state of being completely illegal, um, how does treatment factor into long-term use? And are there examples where use has decreased? So it sounds like maybe the question that is underlying here, which a lot of people do have, is if we do make drugs legal or we do decriminalize drugs, what kind of impact will that have on use? And have we seen use increase or have we seen use decrease? Or people getting into treatment? Well, in, in Portugal, what, what, we, what has been shown there is that people that have been put in a non-coercive, like supportive services like group, where they get access to services, but where they're not forced to do services, like eventually their like drug use does, you know, go down. Most often times it doesn't like stop. And the thing, that's what we have to understand with like drug use. People are gonna keep using drugs. Our focus should not be to stop them from using drugs. It's like, how can we make sure that if they're gonna use drugs, they're using it with clean needles so that you know it's safer for them? How do we manage that process? Because people have been using drugs for thousands of years and we haven't stopped anybody yet. So, but I do wanna say that in Colorado, uh, when they legalized marijuana there, there were reports coming out that, oh, more people are driving high, uh, more people are using drugs, like student use is going up. And it's like, well, you just started tracking this data. Like you don't even have a baseline. You're just going from this point on. And even with the driving, you weren't asking the same questions you were asking in the past. So it's like really, even the reports that come out, like the data, we have to really figure out what those numbers mean, especially this report by the AAA that came out that said DUIs were increasing, but before they weren't testing for those types of DUIs. Ah, so and so, um, yeah, data is also very important on how we, and, and also in California, under Prop 64, there was millions of dollars set aside for research. And so we're gonna be, we have baseline numbers on some things, but base numbers are gonna be starting to be developed soon, especially like around DUI, like swabbing and people driving high, like uh, because there's gonna be, there was money uh, put in to develop a standardized system, we have to be very careful on what that looks like after, because then people might say there's increase, but you know. Got yeah. it. And I would also say there's a difference between an increase in drug use and an increase in visibility of drug use. And sometimes those two things are conflated. Like the community will see folks lighting up on the corner and think, oh, now everybody's you know smoking marijuana. It's like, no, just the folks that smoked marijuana before now feel more free to do it in, in, in the open public rather than secretly. Um, and thankfully to one of our audience members, we now have the acronym for MAPS, which is Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, which we will link to in the show notes if you are interested in learning more about what that psychedelic research is looking like. And on that note, uh, we would like to thank you, Onisis, for your time and thank you to our robust audience. And we appreciate everybody who is listening to the show right now and send us your questions uh, and comments and uh, get in touch with us. Let us know what you thought about this episode on the war on drugs. Thank you, everybody. That completes our conversation for the episode. But before we let you go, we'd like to share a cultural piece provided by a socially conscious and active friend of the podcast. 
This time, it's Just On Time by Indigo Mateo, produced by and used with permission from Richie Reseda. Our theme music is Heartbeats by Rachel Cantu and Melantopia. Stay tuned at the end of the show for a final word from Yvette and Dahlia, as well as this episode's calls to action, questions to stimulate thought, invitations for feedback, and a collection of links and resources to help you on your journey. As always, you can find all that information in the episode's show notes at patreon.com smallbeans. And now, just on time.
listening to this episode we hope that you enjoyed it and learned a lot huge shout out to my homegirl Onesis amazing powerful organizer and voice against the war on drugs the war on our communities and we hope that you stick around for the next episode and as always we're going to give you ways that you can plug in to take anti-racist action and the first is you can read In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts, Close Encounters with Addiction by Gabor Mate. And if you want to get skills on how to hold these difficult conversations around race, you can check out Bold Conversations About Race, a toolkit from Color of Change. And if you're in Los Angeles, you can come to a Saturday Dialogue and you can learn more about the Saturday Dialogues at awarela.org. And you can donate to Justice LA at justicelanow.org. Please send us your questions and comments to boldconversationspod at gmail.com. We're really looking forward to reading them and answering your questions on our next episodes. And we'll have links to all of these ways that you can show up on the Patreon page. And there'll be a ton of links about all the information that we talked about here in this episode. So check out that Patreon page of Small Beans. Produced by Kareem Elzine and Hannah Jers-Allen of White People for Black Lives and Michael Swaim of Small Beans Comedy. Additional audio engineering by Adam Ganser. <laughs>